So Genesis 24, verse 1. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife from my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Narahayim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was towards evening, the time, when, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becker and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. We're going to then go from verse 59, which is on page 25, uh, right-hand column, right at the bottom. Verse 59. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, 
along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai, Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all, that, all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after, the death of his, after his mother's death. Reading this story of Abraham, one thing which um, probably isn't lost on, on any of us is... Um, that's gone really wrong. Sorry. There we go. Is um, that we're entering into another culture and uh, crossing cultural... Uh, barriers and things. And, and often customs uh, of other cultures seem different and strange to us, don't they? And today it's around dating and engagement and marriage and, and the way that happened back then. And it's always tempting for us, anyone when they're crossing a culture, to make very quick judgments and critiques of another culture. But I just want to say we ought not be so rash to do that. We need to experience this story on its own terms and not sneak in our own cultural assumptions and values. And that will help us appreciate what's going on in this story, but also we might come to appreciate some of the strengths in other cultures and some of the weaknesses in our own. Now, now the story today is of Abraham finding um, a wife for his son Isaac. And um, we're just going to jump straight in and we see three uh, things that are true about God in this story and three ways that we're to respond as God's people. So here's the first thing that this story shows us about God and how it responds. We see God's promises and we are to pass them on. Now, the, 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 as we've read all of these episodes from the life of Abraham, we've got to remember that the whole story of his life unfolds in the light of the promises of God. The promises that are given to God, uh, given to Abraham for him, but, but also for the whole world. And that's the perspective from which anything in Abraham makes and in his life makes any sense. Now, now today's episode on one reading is a pretty simple story. A servant of a rich man is sent to find a wife for his son, according to the customs of the day. He finds the woman. He bring, persuades her to come home. She re, uh, returns with him. They get married, and they live happily ever after. And End of story. But the drama of this story, when we understand that it's a story that's to be seen through the lens of the promises of God, is that this story unfolds in the valley of the shadow of death. This story is sandwiched between what we saw last week, the death of Sarah, and spoiler alert, next week, when we finish the story of Abraham's life, we'll finish with his death next week. And here, Abraham seems to know that his death isn't far off. We read in verse 36 that he's passed all of his wealth onto his son Isaac, so he's already taken care of inheritance and things like that. You see, God's covenant promises at this point are on something of a knife edge as this first generation is passing out. Will it be the end of God's promises and God's promise of blessing for people in his world? 
as Sarah and Abraham pass away. A famous um, Christian preacher of the last 50 years or so called Don Carson, a Canadian guy, uh, has said this. He says, one generation believes and loves the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel and the following generation rejects and hates and denies the gospel. From loving to assuming to rejecting. That is what history has told us, is the way that it so often goes with the people of God. And the question is, is that's what's going to happen here? That Abraham and Sarah love the promises of God, but the next generation assumes, and then you just walk away. Well, verse 1 of chapter 24, Abraham is still living in the light of the promises of God that he received 65 years before this point in the story. He is now old. He's 140 years old. And we read that he is blessed by God in every way. He's got this son of promise, Isaac, who himself is now 40, having been born when Abraham was 100. And and at this point, Abraham now at last legally owns some land in the promised land that God has given to him. We saw last week, albeit it's a bit of burial land for his family and his generations to come, but he legally has a footprint in the land of promise. You can see the promise of God's people in God's place, enjoying God's blessing and God's blessing overflowing from them to the whole world, just starting to take shape. But the problem at this point is that Isaac is not married. And so that seed of promise won't be propagated and it won't go on from generation to generation with no people of God, the whole project of God's blessing coming to his world would just stall. So Isaac needs to marry and have kids for there to be any hope. Otherwise, this project, this seed will just die out in the first generation. Would the good news be assumed and then rejected and lost for all history? Well, thankfully not, because for all of, and we've seen them, haven't we, Abraham's faith struggles for all of his folly and all of his faults. In the end, Abraham does a pretty good job of remembering the promises of God, of holding on to them and of impressing them onto others. He passes them on. And so what happens is God's people in the next generation live as if God's promises are true and they're meaningful and they're relevant to their lives. You see, what's happened is God's grace has changed Abraham over time from a faithless man to a man of faith. Back in chapter 15, we see Abraham's first words directly to God spoken, 15 verse 3. And there they are uh, words of doubt and words of a lack of faith, questioning whether God can do what he said he could do. And and in this chapter, we have Abraham's last recorded words in verses 7 and 8 as he's sending his his servant on this mission. And these last words of Abraham, they show a confidence in God that God will deliver on his promises. And Abraham is holding fast to them, even in his old age. He he sends his servant off, and, and it's clear that this whole mission, the whole thing that's driving it and shaping it for Abraham, is the promises of God and his confidence that the Lord will give him success in this. And so when the promises of God are in danger of being forgotten or or, or falling into kind of an irrelevance in history, Abraham reasserts them and he believes in them and he reminds others of them. That's why he's crystal clear. There's two requirements that this servant needs to understand. One is don't get a wife from the Canaanites. That's because the Canaanites, there's a lot of history here, but they're basically people under judgment, not under the blessing of God. He's to find a wife 
from the people under the blessing of God. And secondly, Isaac can't move away from the promised land to, to another place. No, Isaac needs to stay where God has promised. And so Abraham is, is influencing both, we've seen in previous weeks, Michael showed us a few, few weeks ago, Isaac is influenced by his father's faith. Here the, the, the servant is also influenced by Abraham's faith. He's, he's impressing upon them the importance of living all of life as if God's promises are true, as if God is good for his words, and his promises are to be treasured and followed above all else. So listen, what are we to do with the promises of God in our lives? We are to believe them and we're to live in light of them as Abraham did. And one vital way that we do that is we pass them on to others. We share the promises of God with others. Especially when it feels like they're under threat in any way or they might be forgotten or people might not know about them or understand or or realize what God promises to people. Listen, for us, the promises are no longer bound in a specific people or family group. They're no longer in a a particular piece of physical land or a place. They're no longer linked to the ancient wealth of sheep and camels and, and goats and things like that. But God's word assures us, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Each and every one is yes in Christ, and so through him, The amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Christ is both the content of the promises of God and he is also the guarantee of the promises of God. He's the one who ensures that they're delivered on by his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. God's promises to us are in Christ. And so as people of the promise of God in Christ, we pass that on to others where we have influence and where we have opportunity. We impress upon others the value of Christ as the answer and the solution to all the promises of God for them as people made in his image. It's an interesting way, I think, for us to think about our outreach and our evangelism. I wonder how many of your colleagues or your neighbors or your family who don't know Christ would, if I asked them to describe you, would say, yeah, they're a person of promise. I can see in the way they live such a radical and different way because they believe themselves to be personally recipients of the promises of God, that God's made promises to them that that this world can't satisfy. And I I kind of see that in in how they live. What would it look like for that to shape our evangelism? That we're people of the promises of God holding out those promises to people around us. I, I wonder what it would look like for this to shape the way that we raise and we teach our kids from one generation to the next. Impressing upon them the value, the beauty, the wonder of all the the promises of God for them. All of these promises that are yes for them in Christ if they would grab hold of them by faith. That we wouldn't just raise good little rule keepers, good little moralistic kids in dark days, but we would raise people of promise and people of faith. I don't know how many children and young people who grew up in the church to become adults who walk away from the faith. Most of my mates who I grew up in church with have walked away from the promises of God. I'm I'm sure it's true for many of you. I know it is in fact. How many children and young people experience in the church such a bad example of what it means 
to be the people of God and to have the promises of God that it drives them away from the God of all life. Perhaps the most important thing we might do collectively as a church, not just as parents, not just as gate kids leaders, but as a whole church, this is something we own together, is commend the goodness and the beauty of the Lord and his promises to the next generation. Let's not let any one of us or us collectively fail in that. So that the next generation just assumes that what we love dearly isn't worth much. And the generation after is is long gone. God's promises are to be held on to by being passed on. And secondly, God's providence is to lead us to pray boldly. In this story, we see a great example of how God's plans and God's purposes in all things and our responsibility to act faithfully as people run side by side in God's word and in his world. Now, often we want to pit these things against one another. We say, who is it ultimately who's responsible for what happens? Is it God or is it us? And the Bible always has this really frustrating answer. It's yes, both. It's something of a mystery, but listen, it's a beautiful experience when it's lived out in faith. And it helps when we do get to see behind the scenes. As George was saying, we've got the privilege of looking back and reading these stories. And we see behind the scenes that what God's providence, how it works in the life of his people, as we get to see here. Now, now providence is just a big word for God's protective care over his people. It's it's, it's divine guidance or care from the one who is powerful and sovereign over all things. And and you could read this story, Genesis 24, uh, as it unfolds. You you could just say throughout, oh, it it just so happens that this happens. Abraham's servant, he's probably called Eliza, so I'm going to call him Eliza because it's just a bit easier. He just so happened to arrive at the well at the same time as Rebecca. and, And she just so happened to be unmarried. And she just so happened to say exactly what he had prayed that a woman might say as a sign from God. And she just so happened to be from Abraham's extended family, which was exactly what he was looking for. It all just seems remarkably convenient and coincidental, doesn't it? As as the story unfolds. But Eliza knows these are no coincidences. These are no chance encounters. But this is the divine guidance and the care of God. You see it in his prayerful approach to the whole thing. Yes, he takes faithful action. But ultimately, he's seeking God's will and God's guidance in it. So so he goes to what is a good place to meet a potential wife for Isaac. This is the equivalent today, I guess, of setting up uh, a profile for Isaac on Salt or Christian Connections or something. He's going to the place where he might meet people, okay? But he's not taking things into his own hands. Here's the key things. As he does that, he's not just saying, God, I'm going to do this. You just bless it and make this work. And, I, you know, I'm just going to whatever else. No, he's entrusting himself to God and seeking his purposes. And we know that because at this critical moment, he prays a quiet prayer in his heart to the Lord. Verse 12, Lord, make me successful today. Show kindness to my master Abraham. Verse 14, he follows it up as he continues his prayer. Let me meet the woman that you have chosen, Lord, for his servant Isaac, for, for your servant Isaac. You could say it just so happened, but Eliza's praying, and he's dependent, and he's submitting, and he's seeking the will of God in it. 
And so he's ready to spot and acknowledge God's providence when, it, when he sees it unfold. You see, um, we see it in the, bit, the, the reading that we missed, the, the middle bit of the chapter. So what happens where we left the story? In verse 28, Rebecca runs home to tell her family about this guy she's just met uh, at the well. Uh, and so Eliza finds himself invited back to the family home and welcomed into the home. And he's retelling the story of what's happened. And from verse 34 to 49, he's just retelling the, the, the story a second time, basically. Now, to us, it seems repetitive, which, if I'm honest with you, it's why we kind of missed that bit out, because we thought we need to cut the reading down. And, you know, we already know this as a reader, so why are you repeating this again? But listen, the reason why is because this serves to emphasize and reassert the central point of the story. As Eliza retells to this family what's happened, he is, he is uh, he's saying these, these seemingly chance, these seemingly everyday events are actually the Lord delivering on his promises to his people. So, so the way that he tells this story, the key hooks that he uses are, are, are God's work and God's faithfulness behind the scenes that's so often unacknowledged by us as we reflect on our lives and our stories. And, and I'll just give you one little example of that, a lovely little example. It's repeated twice. So verse 15, it happens. And then in verse 45, Eliza retells it. And that is this, that before he even finished praying, Rebecca arrived at the well with a jar on her shoulder. God was already answering the prayer that he said in the quietness of his heart before he had even uttered it. He had but a moment to quickly fire up that brief prayer and she had already long since been on her way to the well. He's a good father. He knows what we need even before we know it, even when we don't know what to ask for. And here, Eliza enjoins, uh, experiences the joy of God's care in that moment. And when he retells the story, he makes sure that they know. God was answering my prayer even before I prayed it. And what happens is the other main characters in the scene, they too spot and acknowledge God's providence in what unfolds. So in verse 50, Laban and Bethuel, Rebecca's sister and her dad, they answer this marriage proposal. This is from the Lord. There's nothing else that can be said about this. This is God's doing. Rebecca herself recognizes it's the Lord's work in verse 58 when she says, yes, I will go and I will marry Isaac as I have been asked. God's providence, that's his, that's his good and his divine care and his guidance over all things and through seemingly ordinary and everyday stuff of life and things in life. Listen, this is not a theory to be debated. This is not some theological conundrum to be resolved, but this is a reality to be lived within. This is something to be experienced day by day and the joy of it to be savored by faith by God's people. At the heart of, of this chapter and at the heart of the events in the chapter, in verse 27, this is, this is what Eliza says. He bows down and worships the Lord saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. Listen to this, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. Praise be the Lord who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. This is the moment that Eliza hears that Rebecca is in Abraham's extended family, that she's one of Abraham's relatives. 
And given all that's happened in the story so far, as he hears that, that news, I, I get the impression, like, I don't know if he was sat on a chair, but he, he kind of just, you get the impression he just kind of erupts into laughter and falls onto the floor, just kind of with, with belly laughter, at joy at the, at the thought of it and at the moment and at the, the kindness of God and the faithfulness of God that he's led, led him right to Abraham's relatives, just as they had hoped and prayed for and asked. God's providence does bring those kind of moments to the lives of God's people. Moments of surprising wonder and beauty where we glimpse his kindness and faithfulness that has not abandoned us yet. It didn't need to be that way. But out of his loving kindness and his faithfulness and his care for them, it is. God has not abandoned his kindness and his faithfulness. He hasn't abandoned it to us here and now. And in this moment for Eliza, this is, this is another gift, another sign, another reminder that God is faithful. He is kind. He is good. And when we see and spot those things in our lives, maybe they can just bring a smile to our face and joy to our hearts. So listen, see yourself and acknowledge God's providence and his care. Too often what we can do is we can think, yeah, I trust God in the big scale. Like I, I'm, sure he, I'm sure he's going to deliver after death. I'm sure he's got that covered. But in the immediate, in the everyday, in the here and now, oh, I'm not so sure. It doesn't quite feel like it. And so we micromanage our life to try and bring good from situations and we end up exhausted and overwhelmed and chronically anxious, don't we? But God has not abandoned his kindness. He hasn't abandoned his faithfulness to you. He hasn't let me down yet, and he's not about to start now. Christians are never in the grip of blind forces. All that happens is in our good Heavenly Father's hands, and it is good for us. And it is helpful for us to acknowledge and see and to delight in that. See and acknowledge God's providential care, but also pray boldly in light of it. It's funny, isn't it, how we can sometimes be too spiritual to ask God for what we really want. And to be so bold as to ask our good and loving Heavenly Father for specific requests. As if that's like not the Christian thing to do. We should kind of get above that somehow. And yet at the center of when Jesus teaches us as his followers and his people to pray, he encourages us to ask God for our daily bread. And that's many things, but it's, it, it, it's, it's to know that God cares enough and is good enough to provide for our moment-by-moment in, 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 uh, moment needs and requests, the, the, moment, the, the, the needs that we feel in this situation on this day. Elsewhere, Jesus says to people, you don't have because you don't ask. I wonder how much we miss out on because we don't ask God for it. Listen, this isn't to encourage us to treat God like a genie and just kind of make these demands like a spoiled child and every whim and wish he just has to deliver on. But we're really too spiritual that we can't honestly bring the, the things that we desire and we want and, and we feel we need before our loving Heavenly Father. We are promised that we have a good Heavenly Father who delights to give his children good gifts, that he knows what is good for us, and so we ought not be shy in asking him for what is on our heart, even as we submit ourselves to his will.
See, Elisa's prayer here was specific and bold as he sought the, the Lord. He said, Lord, I want you to give me success in this situation. It was a big ask to ask that a woman would come and offer to, to water all these camels. We'll see that in a moment. And yet it seems that God was delighted to answer that bold prayer. I remember when I was, I was challenged, I think it was when I was a student, about why I wasn't comfortable praying for God to bless me with good outcomes in my exams. Why, why wouldn't you pray for that? Yeah, work hard, but why wouldn't you ask God to, for it to go well? I remember when a friend asked, uh, challenged me and Annalie why we weren't asking God specifically for the kind of house that we felt we needed in, in this community as we started the gate church. We sheepishly kind of like, oh, it's a bit too brash, isn't it? It's a bit too, oh, we can't really ask God for that, can we? Well, long story short, I can tell you later, we did ask a very simple prayer. And God, in a way that only he would, would do, just very graciously and kindly answered it. In quite a remarkable way for us. He didn't need to. He didn't owe us anything. We had no claim on him. But he was kind. And we were grateful. And our faith was built by his providence and his care. God doesn't help those who help themselves. But God delights to help those who entrust themselves to him and seek his will. A wise man wrote it like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. It's God's providence and we're to pray boldly. And finally, and more briefly, as we see God's provision is to lead us to praise him. And this already sets it up well to praise God when, when, when we experience his, his provision. And we see this in both Eliza and, and to some extent in Isaac, that they take great joy and delight in what God is doing. And, and Eliza particularly offers this fitting response of, of praise and worship. At the end, as, as, um, as the scene kind of culminates uh, with, with Isaac and Isaac and Rebecca. Um, set their eyes on one another for the first time and, and you know this is where kind of the film slips into slow-mo and the musical score soars and, and they get married and it's all this beautiful moment at the end of this scene but, but the key thing here do you see in that last verse is that, that Isaac is comforted after his mother's death as he gets married to Rebecca and, and he loves his wife yes this is a big story of God's plans and purposes and promises continuing in the world but this is an incredibly personal story an intimate and beautiful story of God bringing comfort to a grieving man with a good and generous gift of, of, of a delightful wife. God's provision is always very personal. But, but, but more we see how, how Eliza responds in, in, in particular to God's kind provision. So what we need to see is that God doesn't only provide in just like the basics uh, ways, but he is provided just abundantly here. Rebecca is one impressive woman for Isaac to marry. She's beautiful, she's kind, she's strong. And as we remarked in our, our team time this week, she's got some edgy fashion sense with her nose ring that, that some of us were, uh, were jealous of, weren't we, Caitlin? Um, the, the first thing that's obvious here is her beauty. That's, that's what's said in the, in, in, in the text. But, but very quickly, what is just as apparent is not just her outer beauty, but also her inner beauty. She's respectful, she's generous, she's kind, she's hardworking, she's hospitable, she's servant-hearted. Verse 20 is probably the biggest understatement in, in the Bible, right? It says that she waters um, all of the camels. And uh, what is, How does it say it? 
yeah, drew enough water for all his camels. That is no small feat. Okay, this guy's got 10 camels. This well is an open well with steps down to, um, to kind of take a jar of about 13 liters you'd have been carrying to draw water. Now, I'm no expert, but I, I Googled this because I just thought I've got to find this out, okay? Camels drink over 100 liters to refuel in approximately 10 minutes. That's 1,000 liters of water. This woman is collecting. That's about 100 trips to and from this spring up and down the stairs to this trough. Two hours probably at least of hard labor. Okay? She's an impressive woman. And I don't totally know why, but this guy, Eliza, is sat there watching her closely, not lifting a finger to help, wondering if the Lord has brought him success on this trip. You can imagine him counting 98. Now, you get in there, Rebecca. Keep going. 99, 100. Well done. I, I don't understand that bit, but it's what happens. But he is moved by God's provision here. And it leads him to praise and to worship. Three times, actually, in this chapter, we read of him bowing down before the Lord, praising and worshiping him. And most significantly, these verses in the middle, 26 and 27. As he, as he realizes she's from the extended family, he gives her this, this jewelry as, as, as a kind of a pledge of marriage. And it just brings him to delight. And, and, and we read it before. He, it leads him to bow down and worship God, praising God for not abandoning his kindness and his faithfulness. Praise and worship is the only appropriate, appropriate response to a God who is so lavishly and kindly provides for his people and provides for our needs in ways that we don't even know to ask and beyond what we can imagine. And Eliza here, as he just turns again and again to praise and worship God, models that for us. So, so what, what, what are we to take away from this chapter? Well, listen, God is our promise keeper. God is our provider. We live under his good and protective care as his people. God can finish what he has started. There's no obstacles, no barriers that are insurmountable by him. In fact, he has promised in and through Christ to bring to completion what he has started in the lives of his people. And so when all is said and done, we will, as God's people, Find ourselves with nothing else to do but to praise and to worship him and to thank him and to sing a song to him before his throne, acknowledging the wisdom and goodness of his ways, thanking him for his provision. In a moment of insight, seeing uh, how he has been with us each moment along the way and praising him that he has been good to his word and he has come good on his promises. We will get to that moment, God's word assures us. But listen, we don't need to wait until that day. This is the life of faith. This is what we learn in the life of Abraham. We can be people today who pass on his promises to others around us. We can be people today who pray boldly with confidence in God's goodness and his kindness as a father. And we can be people today who praise him. Who praise him, whatever's going on around us, for not abandoning his kindness and not abandoning his faithfulness to us as his people. And that's what we're going to do in a moment. We're going, to, we're going to sing. So as the guys come up, let's pray. And let's transition to be people of praise in response to these things. Lord, in the, le- in, in the mess of life here and now where we, we don't get always the insights and we don't see behind the scenes and we don't see the answered prayers and we don't know how 
this chapter of this story ends for us. It, it, it is hard, Lord. It is hard sometimes to live as people of faith, to live with that boldness and, and that prayerfulness and that confidence and that praise. But Lord, thank you that in it all we have Christ. Christ who, is, who has overcome and conquered all. Thank you that Christ is the yes to all of your promises. He's not just the content of them of us, but he's the guarantee of them. He's the one who brings them good, who brings them to completion. And so, Lord, help each of us now stir up our hearts even that we might praise you. That we might find reasons, that we might think of evidences, that we might think of even today, even this week, even if we're in deep valleys, just evidences of your grace and your kindness and, and, and ways you've showed us that you've got us and you love us and you're for us. And would they lead us to praise and to trust and to walk faithfully and to pass on. Lord, I know I, I need your help in that today. I'm sure we all do. So help us now and would praise rise within us and from our lips. Would it flow, we pray. Amen.